Well, this morning we're having one of our elders, Shane Sanders. Uh, he is going to be bringing our message this morning. I don't think anybody, most of you probably know Shane, leader of our men's group, men's ministry, and just a man who's discipled so many of you have such a great esteem for him. So Shane, you want to come and open up the scriptures for us this morning as we continue our series on kingdom living. And this is where we, like, I tap out. Is that right? That's right. All right. Tap out. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Grant. Well, good morning. Let's talk about treasures of the kingdom. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I can't remember exactly why. Uh, it probably had something to do with the fact that I found this humongous fossil on a hike once and used it in my science fair. But, you know, a few years later when the Indiana Jones movies came out, I knew I had missed my calling. Uh, I always wanted to go on great adventures, uh, seeking uh, lost treasure of great value and historical significance. Now, let me take you to one scene in particular in the Last Crusade, the third Indiana Jones movie. And if you'll recall, uh, the, the, the corrupt business mogul, uh, Walter Hanover, had made this unholy alliance uh, with the Nazis in search of the Holy Grail because he thought uh, that if he drank water from that cup, he would have eternal life and that would change everything. Yeah, and while his theology is a bit sketchy, uh, just stay with me for a minute as I use this as an analogy to kind of lead into our, our talk this morning. You know, so as the movie progresses, they finally find the cave where the, you know, the cup, uh, so-called, uh, the Holy Grail, has been hidden for 700 years behind Petra, as a matter of fact. And, and who is in there guarding it but this 700-year-old English knight right, who, who has set up a booby trap, has he not? Because he put a, there's not just one cup in there, there's lots of cups, and they're all different. And so how do you know which one's the right cup? Because it's pretty important. Because if you get the wrong cup, you're going to die instantly. But if you get the right cup, the cup, um, then you will have eternal life. So he gets in there, uh, he sees all the cups, and he doesn't know which one to choose. So what does he do? He gets his evil henchman woman, henchwoman, Ilsa, the scientist, to choose for him. But she's on to him, isn't she? She's on to him and doesn't want him to get the right cup. So she chooses the wrong cup. It looks like it could be the cup. And, and he drinks water thinking that he just has found eternal life. But instead, it gets pretty crazy there, doesn't it? I mean, he, he grows 100. I mean, he turns or ages 150 years in about five seconds, 10 seconds. His eyes bulge out, his hair and his, his head, his, his face peels off and his body explodes against the back the back of the cave, and the whole crowd is screaming, and everybody's going crazy, except the old knight. The old knight sits there very composed, and when the dust settles, he says, he chose poorly. No kidding. <laughs> that not the, that's not the uh, statement of the age, isn't it? Yeah, he chose poorly. Uh, in Luke 12, 13 to 34, and in the companion passage over in Matthew 6, 19 to 34, Jesus warns his followers of the perils of pursuing the wrong kind of treasure in life, a worldly treasure, or we might say worldly success, uh, which can take many forms, can it? Uh, wealth, fame, or perhaps building your own empire. And conversely, at the other extreme... He cautions against the anxiety that comes from having limited resources, uh, just meeting your basic needs. Um, so let's turn over to chapter 12, and let me give you a... Uh, we're going to start at verse 13, but I need to give you a little bit of background before we 
before we get there. In verse 1, it's going to know that there are so many thousands of people that have gathered around Jesus at this point. They're trampling each other. And Jesus is in the process of giving some hard messages, heavy messages about a variety of topics. Uh, one, beware the Beware the, uh, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Uh, don't fear the person that can just kill your body, but fear the one who can throw your soul into hell. Uh, and, and, and be ready to acknowledge me before men, so I'll acknowledge you before God. And a number of heavy um, messages in the middle of all that, this guy stands up, says, well, here's a man of authority. Let me, let, me sort of, let me present my little problem to him. And in verse 13, he says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, really, that's what you're going to ask him after everything you've just heard. Okay. But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, speaking to the broader group now, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich before God or toward God. And then in verse 22, he's going to sort of of flip the message a little bit. And he says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, pay attention to the therefore. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Therefore means therefore why. Do not be anxious about your life or what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And then he goes on to describe the ravens and how God provides for the ravens and then for the lilies of the field and how they're elegantly dressed, right? And let's skip down to verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. Consider that for a moment. All the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then verse 34, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, Jesus is describing two groups of people here, as I see it, among the nations. That is, everybody else besides the Jews, right? Um, and, and they have diametrically opposed priorities. We could call them perhaps the haves and the have-nots. Those focused on building worldly treasure uh, or their own personal empires on the one hand, and those worried about just meeting their basic needs. And both he considers to be worldly attitudes. And in describing these attitudes, he sort of shifts the discussion with that therefore. In verse 22, between the two, as if to avoid one extreme can lead to the other. Wow. (laughs) You got me coming and going now. And Jesus concludes by stating that all the nations of the world seek after these things, but not you, not my disciples, not you citizens of the kingdom. You have a different focus, a different priority 
Remember, your heart is where your treasure is. Seek His kingdom, or in Matthew 6.33 it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else will fall into place. He'll meet your needs. But how does the kingdom of God relate, on the one hand, to the pursuit of worldly treasure, and uh, on the other, the anxiety of meeting basic needs? What does the kingdom of God have to do with either of those, really? Why this juxtaposition? That is to say, why are they placed side by side for the purposes of comparison or contrast? Well, let me ask you a few questions. What occupies your time and attention? What do you care about most in life? What do you worry about most? What's your first priority in life? Is it worldly treasure or is it just meeting your needs? What do you want to succeed at in life? Or what are you most afraid of failing at? Are you a have or are you a have-not or some of both, which is probably many of us, some of both? Well, let's start by talking about the meaning of kingdom, the word kingdom. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? How do you know if you're doing it or not? Uh, Luke 12, 31 and also Matthew 6, 33. We have to start by asking, what exactly is the kingdom? Is it a place? Is it a people? Is it a way of life? You know, in our modern definition... Uh, would focus on a realm, primarily a realm in our modern Western idiom. Um, and, and really the concept of kingdom is foreign to us uh, in our 21st century Americans. We frankly haven't had a king in what, 245 plus years? Hey, we decided we were the king. We threw out our king and made ourselves the king and called it a democratic republic, didn't we? Yeah. So this concept of kingdom is a little bit foreign to us. But uh, interestingly enough, in both the ancient Hebrew and Greek, the terms mean the same thing, and primarily, uh, primarily they relate to the authority and the sovereignty exercised by a king, uh, the rule and the reign of a king. And that's where you start to understand what the kingdom of God is. It's, it's first and foremost about the rule and reign of a king, of the king, the sovereignty of the king and his authority to reign in our lives. And, and let me ask this. What's the first thing that Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer after we start off by honoring God's name? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We start by honoring God in His name. And what's the first thing we pray? Yeah, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Yeah, your kingdom come, your will be done. Come and reign in my life and in the lives of people everywhere, just as you reign over everyone in heaven. Now, consider with me for a minute, uh, Matthew 6.10, by the way. Uh, consider the name of Jesus Christ for a minute. Christ is not his last name. I, I hope I'm not informing you of something you don't know. Christ is not his last name. It's what? It's his title. That's exactly right. That's why sometimes in Scripture you see Jesus Christ, other times Christ Jesus. It's his title. And what does it literally mean? It means literally, and that's true both in the Hebrew and the Greek, and in the Hebrew the word is Messiah. Yeah. And in the Greek it's Christ, and they both mean the same thing. It means literally the anointed one. But it came to mean over time the king. Now, who was the first anointed king in Israel's history? Those of you who have been in the study, y'all know Saul. That's right. Saul was the first anointed king, so he was an anointed one. After that, it was 
David, right. And David was the anointed one, and every one of his sons after that was an anointed one, the king. Yeah. Now, through God's promises both to David and then later in prophecy, it came to refer to the king, and not just any king, the king, the king. There's really only one king at the end of the day. There's only one king. The one and only king, and in, and in the Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek, it means that it was referring to the same person, Jesus. Jesus, the Savior and Lord and King of all, who reigns now and forever. Does he not? And what's the first thing the king did when he came to earth? Yeah, he, he set out to rescue his people by dying on their behalf so that they would avoid their fate, their well-deserved fate. He allowed them to avoid that, didn't he? And one day he will return to set everything straight once and for all. I just summarized the book of Revelation in one sentence, and Grant's having a hard time with that. Jesus will return, Jesus will win big, and he will set everything straight once and for all. Amen. All right, we can stop right there. So, so seek first the rule and the reign of the King, Jesus, in your life, and in every part of your life. And in the lives of people everywhere. See, that's the great priority. You've heard of the great commandment. Love God with your whole being. Love others the same way. And the great commission. Go and make disciples everywhere you go as a part of your life. And this is the great priority in Matthew 6.33 and in Luke 12.31. Seek first the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of the king in your life and the lives of people everywhere. And that's the basic meaning of discipleship, isn't it? For the followers are the disciples of the king. Our primary allegiance is to God and to his kingdom and to God's son, our king. And everything else is secondary and subservient. Everything else is secondary and subservient to that. We love Jesus and we so appreciate and respect who he is and what he's done for us. Our first priority in life is Jesus and his kingdom. That's where our treasure is. And we trust Him to meet our needs. It's all about the kingdom. There really isn't anything else. The kingdom of God is the new world order. Don't believe any other hype or anything else you read. There's only one true world order, and it's the kingdom of God. And and when Jesus came, He set things in motion. He will return, and the fullness of the kingdom is yet to come. But He will come. And I'm hoping it's soon, because the world's getting worse and worse and worse, isn't it? Uh, Messier and messier. So that's what we strive for in our walk with God, to seek first His kingdom, His rule, His reign, His lordship. And in the modern vernacular, we want His leadership in our lives. See, Jesus is leading our lives. And if that's true, that means that I'm not leading my life. Now think about that for a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, I'm not the sovereign over myself? No, I'm not. Now I make a lot of choices, don't I? But if I'm a follower of Jesus, I have another leader, another king who is sovereign over me and everything, really. Yeah. Wait, but I'm an American. I'm an American. I have inalienable rights to life, to liberty, and the pursuit of anything I want in life. True? Well, hmm. Well, we do make choices. To find the treasures of the kingdom, you must, in fact, die to your self-centered and primary pursuit of both worldly treasure and just the meeting of your needs. Wow, that's costly, that's hard. 
So let's talk about treasure for a minute. Let's talk about the quality of treasure because to seek first his kingdom is to find real treasure. You want to find real treasure? Then seek first the kingdom of God. That's where you're going to find it. So let's take a look at Matthew 13, um, the other passage that ties with this one a little bit, uh, 44. Now, a little background on Matthew 13. That's That's a wonderful chapter where Jesus is describing in multiple different parables what the kingdom of God is like. Kingdom of God's like this. Kingdom of God's like that. Kingdom's like this. The kingdom's like that. And in this passage... He's going to say that uh, the kingdom is like a treasure and it's like a pearl of great value. So let's, let's read those couple of passages. I'm starting at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like... And by the way, by the way, a little caveat here. When you see the kingdom of heaven in Matthew or the kingdom of God um, in other uh, gospels or in the epistles, and actually a couple of times even in Matthew, it, it's referring to the same thing. Uh, the, the, the distinction is probably related to the fact that who is Matthew, the book of Matthew, written to? Do you remember Jews, right. And one of, the, one of the things of the Jews is they held God's name in such high respect, they didn't say it very much. They would use another alternate term. So when you see kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, it is referring to the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the kingdom of God, the kingdom is like a hidden treasure buried in the ground, and it's like an expensive pearl. Now, let's add some, a little bit more understanding and context there. Um, each of these guys will, will do the same thing. They'll sell everything to gain this to gain this, this treasure. But one is sort of accidentally finds it, and the other one is intentionally looking for it. The first guy is just probably passing through a piece of property on his way who knows where and stumbles onto this treasure. It's probably a lost treasure. Back in the day, they didn't have banks, and so they stored their valuables uh, and their money literally in a hole in the ground, in a sack in the hole in the ground, because that part of the world actually has lots of caves and little caverns and places. You didn't have anywhere else to put it. And so some commentators have speculated that this is probably someone's treasure. They, they may have died. Nobody may be living on the property anymore, and he just happens to stumble onto it. But he does the right thing, doesn't he? He doesn't take it and run off with it. He puts it back where he found it and goes and legally buys the field. Because once you buy the field, you get everything that goes with the field. So then he gets the treasure. Um, the second guy, on the other hand, is a pearl hunter, I mean, or a pearl merchant of some kind, and he is in search of fine pearls. Now, to us, pearls are valuable, but in our day, what would be the stone that would be the, the, you know, the, the one most valuable kind of thing that we search for or value in our day? It'd probably be a, a diamond. That's right. So let's call him a diamond merchant. And he finds the biggest, most beautiful stone of all time, probably off the Titanic, maybe. <laughs> and, and when he finds that stone... See, in that culture, in that day, pearls had the value that diamonds do to us today. He's willing to sell everything, everything he's got to buy that one diamond, that one pearl, a great price, just like the other guy. He'll he'll sell everything just to buy that little piece of property that has that treasure. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like that. What's the point? What's the point? That's a familiar parable to you, but we kind of blow past that. What's so valuable that I'll sell everything to get it? Because its value is priceless. When you see the kingdom for what it is, you'll give up everything gladly to get it, to obtain it. 
It's about perspective. It's about understanding the nature of real treasure. I'll gladly die to myself, my career, my wealth, and everything else, even my family, to gain the kingdom when I see it for what it is. Although my flesh will fight it, my flesh will fight it because, right, we still, we still deal with the, the, the fight between the spirit and the flesh. But once you see it, you'll go for it. So what I like to do in the remaining time is, is share some of the greatest treasures that I've either discovered in my walk or that I've received from others who've invested in me through the years. And they're really not like conventional treasure because they're kingdom treasures. And, you know, I found them to be primarily one of three things in general. Um, one, uh, they're relational in nature, and by that I'm referring to areas of love and trust. Uh, two, I would say they're character-based, like fruits of the Spirit. And three, they're missional in nature, relating to purpose and meaning. So, um, and, and they result from Christ's reign in our lives and every part of our lives, but, but what are the key parts of our life? Um, my longtime mentor who just passed away just a couple of years ago was a man by the name of Ford Madison. And he used to keep, uh, I met with him regularly for many years, and he kept in his wallet an index card divided up into four parts. And he put personal, family, work, and ministry on that little index card. And he had his goals written out for the year in each of those areas. I thought, wow, what a, what a profound, simple little tool uh, that he used. And so I adopted his approach. And I thought, well, you know, that really kind of addresses the main four areas of my life, too. My personal life, what goes on in my personal life, and my personal walk, too, that goes with that. My family life, my wife married. I've been married for 40 years. Gosh, I, that didn't look that old, did I? I have three children. I have six grandchildren. Uh, my daughter's about to get married in three weeks from today, in fact. I had to fill that in, sorry. Um, and, and my work life, I'm an attorney. I've been an attorney for 35 years. Wow. Um, and, and then my ministry life. I've been involved in ministry for well over almost 35 years too. Um, first, I was involved in college ministry for many years down at A&M and then men's ministry of different kinds from, in several different churches. And so I have used that sort of four-part system to help me stay focused on a, on a kingdom-oriented life. And in fact, there was a time when I also sort of wrote out mission statements or purpose statements in each of those areas just to try to help me stay focused uh, and aim to be Christ-centered and kingdom-oriented in my life. So what I'd like to do, I guess, in our remaining time is, is share some of the life lessons that I've learned through the years in each of these four areas, my personal treasure chest, if you will. Um, and I'll share... Um, some of the most important treasures to me that I've either discovered or received in each of those areas. And, and, but but let, me, let me issue this caveat. I'm still a work in progress, okay? I'm not there. I have not arrived. These are still goals I pursue. Uh, so let me, let's start with personal. And, and I'll say the two greatest treasures that I have I've gotten that part of my treasure chest would be to uh, the importance of staying in the Word and prayer, and uh, this idea of continually putting off the old man and putting on the new man. So what do I mean by that? You know, in John 15, uh, staying in the Word and prayer, in John 15, Jesus says that everything flows from the abiding. John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right, I looked that up in the Greek. You know, it's very interesting. In the Greek, that word nothing means nothing. <laughs> 
Yeah, nothing. <laughs> I can do nothing unless I stay connected to Jesus. And how do you do that? What's the main way you stay connected to Jesus? Spending regular quality time in the Word and prayer. Also fellowship. There are other ways that we abide in Christ. But to me, fundamental, uh, and you start with time in the Word, time in prayer. And I know I am a broken record on this issue. <laughs> I am. I also think it's important to take in the whole counsel of the Word of God on some kind of a regular basis. Uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All of it's profitable. All of it's useful. Now, when we spend time in the Bible, we often will re- read um, the dessert, what I'm going to call the dessert portions. You know, we like Psalms and Proverbs and Ephesians and, and the Gospel of John and so forth. But, but uh, we also need to, on a regular basis, be taking in these, what I'll call the spinach and broccoli portions of the Bible. Leviticus, Nahum, Revelation, some of the harder books that are harder to get through. Well, they're there because God wanted them there. There are things about God and about life and about everything He wants us to learn by reading them on a regular basis. So taking in the whole counsel of God on some sort of a regular basis, every year, every two years, or however you break it up, I mix it up lots of different ways, and I've been doing that myself for about 35 years now. Because I've really found that the simplest things are the most profound. If you just did that, spent regular quality time in the Word and prayer, it will change your life more than anything else. It really will. Because that's what God does through His Word, by His Spirit. All right, second one, putting off the old, putting on the new, Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Uh, I'll tell you that character is the most valuable thing you own. Because it's the only thing you're taking with you when you leave. Everything else is staying here, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But the idea is that putting off the old sinful ways is a continual process. Repenting needs to be a daily thing, doesn't it, for you? And cultivating uh, the fruits of the Spirit and who you now are in Christ needs to be a regular, ongoing process. Once for all, I'm saved. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about growth and transformation as a part of your life. Dying to yourself, um, your self-centeredness, denying yourself. Colossians 3, 5 through 10 speaks about that. And, and, and also living out what I'm going to call the conform, transform dichotomy that you see in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed, rise above, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Cultivate the fruits of the Spirit. Now, you know, when you read that passage in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, there's nine fruits. There's, there's more fruits than that but el- elsewhere, but, but in this list are the nine. And, and conversely, when you read the list of the, of the gifts in, in 1 Corinthians 12, there are nine gifts. Now, we all sort of know, I don't necessarily get every single gift, right? Um, but I think God does want to cultivate all the fruits in my life. So am I, am I pushing forward in that area? And then finally, I'll say pursue holiness in everything. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. Holiness. You shall be holy for I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? That's another whole talk. I won't try to go in that one right now. Right, let's, let's talk about the family for a minute. My two, my two key treasures there are walk in agape love, especially towards your spouse. And two, build relationships with your children, but discipline them. Okay, so agape, the great commandment. second part of the great commandment says what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your closest neighbor if you're married? Your spouse. In fact, I remember the old days when I heard a guy say, you know what, when I'm interviewing someone for some sort of spiritual leadership position, all I need to do is go talk to his wife because she'll give me the lowdown of what he's really like. 
Yeah, and that's true, isn't it? So, um, right, I want to love my wife unconditionally, and I don't give to get, I give to have. That's what agape is. See, agape is not a term, it's not an emotional term. The emotional term is phileo and eros, sensual term. Agape is a term of choice. I give it to you because I want you to have it. Not because uh, there's anything I'm going to get back in return for it. In fact, I'll say one of my, this is my definition. I believe agape is nature-based, not object-based. And what do I mean by that? Object-based. If I'm, a, if I'm, if I'm unmarried and young and, I, and I'm dating, oh, that girl attracts me. And, and why? Because she has certain qualities about her that attract my attention. Or I like that house over that house because of the qualities inherent in the, or, or that are a part of the house itself. Um, but that's not agape. That's, that's phileo or eros. Agape says really nothing about you that attracts or draws me to you. I'm giving you love because it's in my nature for you to have it and to give it to you. Romans 5, 5 says we have uh, the love of God because the Holy Spirit poured it out in our heart. And verse 8, verse 10, Jesus demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinemies, <laughs> sinners, verse 10, enemies, i got to try to put that together in one word, <laughs> sinners and enemies, Christ died for us, the ultimate act of agape. Yeah, so that's the way I want to act towards my wife. Now, again, like I said, that's a goal and an aim. I'm not professing that I got this down. Just ask my wife. She's in the back corner right now. So I probably get about a C, C minus on the issue right now, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Seek the highest good of your spouse. Lay down your life for your spouse, John 15, 13. And what is agape? Really, what it is is honor, respect, esteem, and devotion. That's what agape is, honor, respect, esteem, and devotion. Be unselfish, be self-sacrificing like Jesus is for the church. And, and, and this part, I build relationships, but discipline, I'm focusing this primarily on, on, um, on children because you want to show them agape as well. Um, I learned this years ago as an old trite little statement, be fair, firm, and fun. I've always liked that one. Be fair with your kids and how you judge their behavior. But be firm when the situation calls for it. But be a lot of fun. And let's have a lot of fun with the kids. Talk to your kids. Listen to your kids. Interact with them. And that gets harder and more challenging as they become teenagers. I know I've lived through this. I've lived through every stage of child growth now. And my youngest child now is finally getting married. And everyone's off the payroll. And it's great because i got a big raise. <laughs> so I have lived through all of this. Uh, but you do have to teach children to... Uh, well, you have to teach them respect and responsibility. They don't know these things innately. You have to teach them to respect you first and your spouse and then others in authority. You have to teach them personal responsibility. They won't learn it, learn it on their own if you don't teach them. But you do have to patiently and consistently discipline, Proverbs twenty three thirteen. And I like the Barney Fife method. You got to nip it. You got to nip it in the bud because if you don't, and you let this go, it, gets, it only gets worse and worse and worse over time, especially when they become teenagers. Yeah, and they're still struggling with the same thing they had when they were two and three years old because you didn't nip it, right? But it's never too late. <laughs> Parents should be the most influential people in their children's lives. Stay informed, stay connected, know who they're hanging out with, what they're into, what they're doing, and stick with them for as long as they live under your roof because you're responsible for God for them, and you care how they turn out. 
All right, let's go to work. Bottom two, the bottom two boxes, work and ministry. My two there are live like a tent maker. And what I mean by that is uh, some of the men I watched do this lived what I'm going to call, this is my label, a fully integrated lifestyle of occupation or vocation and ministry. So in the American culture, uh, for many people, occupation is number one, my career, my profession. And I know because I live around lawyers and they're the most arrogant people anyone's ever around, right? Besides doctors, sorry, John. Um, <laughs> no, I'll put them on the equal plane. <laughs> Um, and, and, and yet, am I willing to make choices, First Thess 2, 9, such that I, I want to integrate the two and I have time for ministry, time for family, in addition to my job? And I want to do excellent work and I want to do well, right? But am I willing to integrate these two and live like a tent maker? Am I willing to sacrifice the corporate ladder if called for, for the sake of the kingdom? I've actually have been called on that issue a few times. I won't go into it today. Um, you know, when we use the term tent maker, we are referring typically to a missionary who moves overseas and can't get in as a missionary. So they go in as an engineer or an English teacher, never a lawyer. They don't like lawyers overseas. Um, <clears throat> right? Um, why don't we live like that here? Whatever you are, whatever your profession or your occupation is, why don't we live like tent makers here? <laughs> in other words, my primary, my primary focus is the kingdom of God, advancing the kingdom in ministry. But I serve, and how I support my family is like this. That's actually how Pharisees lived, to be honest with you. And that's, that's why Paul imitated that and was himself a tent maker. You know, he, he was literally a tent maker. But it came to refer to someone who supported himself but was actively involved in ministry, right? Why, why don't we do that in the United States? We should. See, actually, everyone in this room should be a tent maker unless you're a professional. You're in full-time Christian work. And 99% of all Christians will not be professionals. They'll live in the ordinary working world, won't they? But it requires balance and margin. And if you don't pursue that, the world and the responsibilities will overwhelm you, won't they? And we'll live a reactive life instead of a proactive life. But let's also remember Ephesians 4.12, that it's the saints, that is the citizen soldiers of the church, the ordinary folks like us, who do the work of the ministry. We have the best job, don't we? See, the leaders and the professionals are there to equip us, but we do the work of the ministry. Sorry, Grant, we got the best job. We've got the best job in the church. We really do. And the second, second point there under work, I'll say, is work heartily with excellent. Do excellent work. One of the first attorneys that, that, that I worked under shared it, said, if you'll just do these three things, you'll do just fine. If you'll do excellent work and you'll do it timely, and you'll communicate regularly with a client, you'll do just fine. I found that to be so true 35 years later. If I'll, do, if I'll do a good job, give it my very best within the time I have to do it, and do it timely, in other words, meet the deadline and get it done on time, and then keep the client informed as to where I am or if delays happen or things happen, and communicate regularly with them, then I will do just fine. And do the unwelcome tasks well. I have found there to be generally three categories of tasks in any job. The welcome tasks, that is the things I like to do, the things I really like about the profession I'm in. The routine tasks that are things, eh, somebody's got to do them and I've got to do my fair share, right? And then the unwelcome tasks, the stuff that everybody hates to do but somebody's got to do it, right? Do the unwelcome tasks well, like a good servant. And I had to learn that one the hard way myself once. 
Okay, I'll save that one for another story. (laughs) Act consistently at work, home, and church. I'm especially aiming this at you men. Because we have, a, we have a tendency to bifurcate who we are. And we're one way at work, and we're another way at church, and sometimes even another way at our family. No, you're the same person consistently across the board in all the different roles you serve in. And there's no distinction between secular and sacred. All is sacred, Ephesians 6, 7. Right. And remember, credibility, your credibility is a huge part of your witness So if you do excellent work, then you've built a platform that will enable you to minister to people that you come in contact with. But if you're a sorry, sloppy worker, why should I listen to anything you have to say about about the faith or about the kingdom? (laughs) I'm not going to pay attention to you. Yeah. Ultimately, remember, we're serving the Lord, Colossians 3, 22 and 23. All right, let's turn to the last one then. Ministry. Serve beyond yourself. Serve to glorify God and for the good of others, 1 Peter 4, 10. Don't do it ultimately because that serves you. Now, take this in the right spirit that I mean it, but there are in every town many service organizations that we get involved in and we do good works in the community. But honestly, we do a lot of that because it gets my name out and it helps me develop my business. And there's nothing wrong with that. But don't serve like that in the church. Serve to people who can't return the favor, Luke 14, 12. And understand, Grant spoke on this last week. I was out of town. Sorry, Grant, I missed this. But live by the golden rule, not the world's golden rule. Matthew seven twelve. You know what the world's golden rule is? You should because he just told you last week. Them that's got the gold makes the rules. Yeah, no, we don't live by that one. We live by the real golden rule. Um, help others succeed in their ministry. Know your spiritual gifts and use them. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. And remember, true greatness is found in serving in serving. That's where true greatness is anyway, Matthew 20, 26. And finally, and this is my pet peeve issue uh, in ministry, is labor in the harvest, Matthew 9, 37. Invest in others. Invest in others. Disciple others. And that is both an intentional and a relational process. Highly intentional, highly relational at the same time. Because we're about making mature, complete, well-rounded disciples. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, which is one of our main mission statements here at this church. Um, really, all discipling is is that one older brother coming along next to a younger brother and helping them take the next step or steps along the path to Christ-likeness in every part of their life for as long as God allows us to walk together. And so uh, we're ministering to both felt needs and foundational needs. Felt needs are areas where they need help, It's unique to them, and foundational needs are areas where all of us need to be developed and built up. And we utilize both encouragement and accountability, some of both. We need lots and lots of encouragement, but we also need to be held accountable in our actions. And it's probably a three-to-one ratio because we just need lots of encouragement. And finally, it's all about spiritual multiplication, reproducing, reproducers, 2 Timothy 2.2. And I'm going to say this, a whole lot of ministry, which is all good, serving, is what I'm going to call two-dimensional ministry, and that is the ministry is complete when I deliver the service, which is great. But this one, spiritual multiplication, is a, I'm going to call that a 3D or third three-dimensional ministry. Why? Because when I finish helping someone uh, grow up and mature in Christ, they then can go off and do the same thing. Now there are two of us doing it. It's kind of like if I raise my children correctly, they can grow up and live out in society and get married and start their own family without me there because I've invested in them. So discipling is really a whole lot like raising children. Isn't it? All right, let me conclude by saying this. Wow. (laughs) 
God wants us to succeed at the right things. He really does. And to be rich towards Him. There's really nothing worse, is there, than succeeding at the wrong things? Or succeeding at something that really doesn't matter? What a waste of life. Or being consumed with worry instead of trusting God to meet your needs. I want to succeed at life as God intended. Do you? Do you want to succeed at life as God intended it? I want to seek the reign and the leadership of Jesus in every part of my life. I want to be about advancing the kingdom of God in the lives of people everywhere because I want the treasure of priceless value, the treasures of the kingdom. Amen. Let's pray.